Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 38 on March 8, 2019, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be discussing the Green New Deal, as well as our proposed alternative, the Low Tech New Deal. We'll also have our weekly regular news roundups and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. The Green New Deal, introduced as House Resolution 109 on February 7th, has received much media ballyhoo. But what does the resolution actually say? You can read it for yourself in full text on Congress's website, which we'll link to in the show notes, or simply keep listening for a summary. The resolution starts by citing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade. This report indicates that a global warming of 2 degrees centigrade would cause mass migration, $500 billion in lost economic output and damage to $1 trillion worth of infrastructure, loss of practically all coral reefs, more wildfires, and much more. As climate change is human-caused, we must keep warming under 1.5 degrees centigrade by reaching net zero emissions by 2050. This is what the resolution cites from that IPCC report. And I will note that that is potentially a conservative estimate. The resolution argues that since the U.S. is responsible for 20% of annual global emissions, we should lead on their reductions. At the same time, we can address our declining life expectancy, food quality, health care, education, and transportation networks exacerbated by declining hourly wages, poor social mobility, bargaining power, and ability to combat climate change as we suffer from the greatest wealth inequality since before the Great Depression, not to mention race and gender disparities. It is a plan that hopes to solve all of the hot-button issues of the day. The federal government can lead a mobilization similar to the scale of the New Deal and World War II to combat global climate change and address the systemic social problems, creates millions of jobs, boosts the economy, and counteracts injustices. Therefore, this resolution calls on the government to create a Green New Deal with the goals of net zero greenhouse gas emissions, millions of jobs, infrastructure investment, and a focus on clean air and water, resilience, healthful food, wild spaces, and environmental protection. This should be done through a 10-year mobilization to build resiliency in infrastructure, eliminate pollution and emissions, create access to clean water, reduce climate risks, and meet 100% of the power demand through clean, renewable energy. This is through upgrading and new installations of energy power systems. This also includes work on the grid, existing buildings, manufacturing, agriculture, transportation network, healthcare, ecosystem restoration and protection, and cleaning hazards. The resolution's authors argue that this would be done with public input and working with stakeholders and members of all communities, especially those who will be impacted by these projects. Investments should go towards retraining, research and development, fair-waged work, strengthening workers' rights, 
enforcing existing and new regulations, protecting public lands, guarding against monopolies, and providing all people with health care, housing, economic security, and healthful and clean air, water, and food. It does a lot. So let's look a little closer at some of this. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to be net zero emissions? The Green New Deal is ambitious. Net zero emissions by 2030 is an enormous goal for a country that emits over 6.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents each year. Although this is down from our peak of over 7.4 gigatons CO2 in 2007, this is only part of the 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide emitted annually. Note that we don't have to get to zero emissions. This is practically impossible as carbon exists in nature as part of a cycle. Atmospheric carbon is absorbed by plants, turned into biomass, and either buried or decomposed to release the carbon back into the atmosphere. Without counting volcanic emissions, the world without humans is largely net zero in carbon emissions. That is, the carbon taken out of the atmosphere is largely put back in an equal measure. What this resolution calls for is net zero emissions, meaning that for every ton of CO2 released in the transportation network, electricity generation, industry, commercial and residential buildings, and agriculture, we have to find something that absorbs that much carbon from the atmosphere. Obviously, the easiest way to reach net zero is to reduce our emissions, as carbon capture is not scalable at this time. Currently, our carbon sinks include reforestation, and conservation of grasslands and forested areas, which amounts to about 0.7 gigatons in 2017. That is, we're 10 times over our net zero budget right now. The biggest driver of CO2 emissions is the combustion of fossil fuels, accounting for about 76% of total emissions in the United States each year. Of course, our society depends on fossil fuels. We discussed energy at length in a series of blog posts last year. We discussed how switching to electricity can't solve all of our emissions problems. We went through various sources of energy, including nuclear reactions, combustion and consumption of biomass, and harnessing temperature differentials, that is, wind and hydro, as well as proposed solutions. First, we argue that we must recognize that the collection and use of finite fossil fuels and nuclear fuels is deleterious for the world, people, animals, and ecosystems, and must be discontinued period. Second, we should mimic natural systems for our energy needs, solar for heating, and distributed energy use. And we must live within our energy budget, that is, no more than the sun provides to us each year. Finally, the simpler the solution, the better. The Green New Deal is a resolution, not a law. It points the boat towards a goal, but doesn't give exact details of how to get there. Net zero emissions is a great goal, but like everything, the devil is in the details. The IPC special report hopes that we'll get to net zero by 2050 by using carbon capture technology, something that is not yet scalable, and we covered this last October on the blog. One of the biggest questions left unanswered by the Green New Deal is how we can possibly build and retrofit all of this infrastructure with current fossil fuel dependent equipment and practices and still approach net zero. You can read a well-rounded critique from Elizabeth Robson, which we'll link to in the show notes. Without significant societal changes, we will not see net zero emissions. A document circulated with this resolution calls on society for just that, hearkening back to World War II and the New Deal. In addition to the non-binding House resolution, a document was circulated with more specific action items, and these have caught media attention. This is where media outlets have gotten a headline such as, quote, Green New Deal wages war against air travel, cows, 
end quote. And another quote, Democrats' Green New Deal wants to eliminate farting cows. These media accounts claim that this outlaws air travel, when it in fact calls for, quote, a build-out of high-speed rail at a scale where air travel becomes unnecessary, as well as other projects with more specific details. This document has since been retracted, as it appears to be more of an internal memo than a publication-ready plan, but at least judging by the informal language and formatting. It does, though, answer many of the questions raised by their non-binding resolution, which paints with broad strokes. Here's a brief summary of the key questions, answers, and the Institute staff's position. In short, we've been advocating for much of what the Green New Deal calls for, and more, since the Institute's been around. So first, how deeply will this plan be felt by society? The Green New Deal proponents equate this to JFK's moonshot, Eisenhower's interstate system, and FDR's depression and war mobilization. They cite the high return on investment of these programs, where many, many more dollars were generated as a result over the initial cost to the taxpayers. This would affect everyone in the country, either directly through infrastructure jobs or indirectly through vastly reducing our use of fossil fuels in our everyday lives. Three years ago, I published a book called Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? Here's the last paragraph, quote, Inverting our cultural values is a Sisyphean task, but many small changes can make a difference. We cannot consume our way out of this crisis, but we can all change our purchasing habits and how we view those who waste our collective resources by overconsuming. If, for example, gas-guzzling luxury vehicles were viewed with contempt for their wastefulness instead of envy, those buying them would seek a more socially responsible way to demonstrate their status. Since World War II, we have not had a global need for sacrifice and have grown complacent. It is time for us to acknowledge the advantages we have derived from overabundant energy consumption and exchange quantity for quality." End quote. Another question comes to mind. What types of energy would be supported under the Green New Deal? This plan calls for eliminating fossil fuels, such as gasoline, natural gas, coal, and so on, as well as nuclear from transportation and energy generation through the phase-out of existing plants. The Green New Deal makes fossil fuel or nuclear plants unnecessary, basically. The long-term goal is 100% renewable energy, and it's a debatable whether or not this can happen in just 10 years. The Low Technology Institute would go a step further, as this Green New Deal document is too short to discuss the energy reduction that would be needed. And here's the fuzzy math argument that I'm going to go into in more detail a little later. The sun provides a finite amount of energy per square meter of Earth, and that's about 1,000 watts. We can't capture all of that energy. Fossil fuels are hundreds of thousands of years of accumulated solar energy stored in ancient biomass. That's why they embody so much energy. We can't capture enough energy to make up the same amount of power as the fossil fuels we currently burn. Even with wind, hydro, and other non-emitting energy generation, we are going to have to cut back. The document does talk about retrofitting existing infrastructure and building out the electric transportation network, and these are good steps, but we can't just electrify everything and continue living as we are. Another question, what about carbon tax or cap-and-trade? The Green New Deal document rejects both a carbon tax and cap-and-trade ideas. They point out that a carbon tax is passed on to the consumers, and this disproportionately affects the working and middle classes who would have to spend a greater proportion of their income to fuel their homes and cars. Also, 
if the carbon cap was set low enough to make a difference in climate change comparable to the Green New Deal, it would ruin companies in the economy, whereas the proposed plan would spur new infrastructure and construction. They point out that the free market cannot solve this problem, and finally, the amount of money needed to com for a complete overhaul of our infrastructure can only come from the people. We agree with this assessment by and large. Carbon taxes do hurt the consumers, especially those of restrictive means. And the free market cannot get us out of the problem because the free market is linked to the rise of this problem. Our current economy is based on the infinite world model, and it cannot function indefinitely on a planet with finite resources. The Green New Deal has 10-year goals. It calls for net zero emissions, millions of created jobs, infrastructure investment, the repair of social injustices, and clean ecosystems, communities, and food. This will be realized through many projects, including repair and upgrading existing infrastructure, including buildings, roads, farms, and others, 100% power through clean and renewable sources, a distributed electrical grid, creation of clean manufacturing, reducing of climate-related health effects, and restoration and increase of natural carbon sinks like forests and prairies. While doing this, programs should ensure that social and environmental costs are taken into consideration, it should provide job training, it should support research and development, it should use democratic processes for decision making, it should also guarantee a family supporting wage, and strengthen and enforce worker safety laws, it should protect public lands, and work honestly with indigenous communities, as well as hamper unfair economic actors and monopolies, while ensuring healthcare, housing, security, and clean environments for all. Again, it's a catch-all. It's supposed to do everything. And while all of these may be sound proposals on the surface, the Institute encourages more action on the local level, individual, household, and community-scale projects. Nationwide projects are great, but they can feel alienating or far removed from our day-to-day -day lives, whereas local efforts can be seen and felt directly by the people involved a neighborhood biodigester to create clean burning gas that is less harmful to the environment than simply composting organic matter, for example, or distributed electrical grids built and repairable by the people that use them, or a community flock of animals and crops are palpable examples of how we might work on the local level rather than across the nation on large-scale projects. Also, this localized approach, unlike nationalized ones, appeals to the rugged individualism that is prized in rural areas such as much of the country, uh, including where the Institute is located. Of course, climate change is an all-hands-on-deck emergency, and if we can have a nationwide overhaul of our energy, transportation, and food infrastructure along with localized efforts to change the way we live on this planet, we might have a fighting chance at a different but sustainable tomorrow for our children. This week we've been working to bring together many ideas that we have published over the years on the blog and put them into a coherent plan. If the Low Technology Institute was proposing a new deal, what would it look like? Although the Green New Deal has garnered support and opprobrium since it was published, and while this plan at least acknowledges the problem of climate change and identifies the proper scale of our reaction, we can point to large gaps in the plan that must be remedied. One question is, how are we going to do all this construction while still limiting emissions? Another is, who will truly profit economically from this plan? And finally, and this is the big one that everyone asks about, how do we pay for it? But the biggest gap in this plan is essentially that it is a way to continue an anthropocentric, high-consumption way of life. 
The Low Technology Institute is not opposed to this or any other point of view per se. If we could continue to live a human-focused, materialist lifestyle with no negative repercussions to ecosystems, other living creatures, the climate, or society, then by all means, and Mardi Gras just ended, so laissez le bon temps rouler. That is, let the good times roll, right? I used to live in New Orleans and went to Tulane, so had to get that in there. But unfortunately, this isn't the case. We can't continue to live the way that we are and just build out a lot more infrastructure to allow that to happen. It's just not energetically possible. And the most basic restriction to our carrying capacity is solar radiation. It drives wind and water cycles as well as provide direct and indirect energy through solar panels and heating or biomass creation and combustion. We get about 280 BTUs per square foot per hour from the sun, but that's at noon. And the average solar panel only gets about four hours of full sun per day. And those panels only capture a percentage. So let's say about 50 BTUs per square foot per hour as a rough estimate. And again, that's only four hours a day for full sun. The US consumes about 97 quadrillion BTUs per year. So that's about 97 followed by 15 zeros BTUs per year. If we wanted to get this much power from the sun, we'd have to build enough solar panels to cover about 48,000 square miles. That's about the size of the state of New York. That doesn't take into consideration the creation and installation of the panels, transmission losses of electricity, and so on. We won't go into the total energy generating capacity of non-carbon emitting energy sources, but suffice it to say, we can't generate enough electricity to simply switch over to electricity from fossil fuels. This means, then, that we have to reduce our use of energy. We did a whole podcast about how Buckminster Fuller visualized our reliance on energy slaves. You can find podcast number 34 on our website under the podcast tab. With these two points in mind, first, anthropocentrism, and second, carrying capacity, let's turn to what could be considered a low-tech New Deal. Unfortunately, it's not as enticing as the Green New Deal for most of us living comfortably today. It would require large societal reorganization, but instead of one that ignores the cost of getting there, the low-tech New Deal would get us to net zero emissions and long-term sustainability. While our way of life would be unrecognizable in many regards, the biggest change would have to be our outlook on life and what it means to live a good one. And I'm warning you now, this will not be easy or popular. So first, we have to lay out the two criteria that we are trying to meet with this deal, or really any viable deal for the future. First, any solution to the climate crisis must bring our emissions down to net zero or below as quickly as possible. Second, continual growth is not possible in a finite world over enough time. Thus, our solution must be sustainable into the distant future for ecosystems, non-human life, and human life alike. This means it should be a stable state, economy, and way of life for us and our surroundings, neither growing to consume everything, nor fading away to nothing. We've derived three central rules for long-term viability, or uh, tenets by which we could live, which we'll use to guide our choices in the low-tech New Deal. We've discussed these ideas and many others on our blog and podcast throughout the years. Check out Thursday's blog post for a text of this plan, which includes links to each one of these different blog posts 
that has more information about most of the topics I'm going to be talking about for the next few minutes. So the first tenet is that we are one among many. We must recognize that human beings are just one among many organisms on the planet. Human beings' ability to think has enabled us to overvalue our position on Earth. While we can outthink insects, they out-eat us, outweigh us, and outnumber us. Metacognition, or our ability to think about thinking, ourselves, and our place in the world, however, has endowed humans with hubris. No other animals have hubris. These abilities have granted us an outsized influence on the world and dominion over other organisms. But with this power comes responsibility. We have been shirking our responsibility and abusing our influence. We must take a more objective view of life on Earth and use that perspective to rein in our arrogance. Second, natural mimicry. We live in a post-enlightenment society and most of us believe that science and careful study can lead to greater understanding of the world, often through experimentation. Nature has been running experiments in survival for over four billion years, since the beginning of life on Earth. Species successful in the long term have three things in common. First, they depend on the sun or sun-derived products for subsistence. Second, they have built-in mechanisms to avoid depleting their resources. And third, they can utilize a wide variety of resources to reduce their risk of starvation. We should work to emulate nature's successful experiments. And the third tenet is that simple is better than complex, and complex is preferred to complicated. We purposefully complicate our lives and call it progress. Living depends really only on five actions, sleeping, eating, drinking, breathing, and eliminating, plus procreation when you want to discuss the continuation of the species. From a minimalist point of view, everything we do beyond fulfilling these five plus actions is an added complication. We must eliminate the complications, reduce complexity, and champion the simple and straightforward solutions. The more of our five actions that we can see to for ourselves, the better off we'll be. Okay, so how do we get to a sustainable future? Our society, let's say, is on an airplane and the fuel is running out. We can either choose to land the plane now or continue flying until we're on empty. An emergency landing today is inherently better for long-term survival than attempting a crash landing tomorrow. Again, if it's not clear to you that we are really deep in it, please check out the conservative IPCC special report, again linked in the show notes. We've been posting on the blog about the future of our global society in terms of energy, economy, society, and food since 2016. What follows is a scenario that weaves these ideas together. And now, without further ado, on to the plan. Here it is, in the shortest form I can put it. We need to take the next five years and massively overhaul how our society lives with the goal of completely eliminating our dependence on non-renewable resources. I'll repeat that. We need to take the next five years and massively overhaul how our society lives with the goal of completely eliminating our dependence on non-renewable resources. That's it. That's the plan. Let's look at what that would actually mean on a practical and personal level. The Green New Deal talks about a nationwide buildup of infrastructure and the economy, but this ignores how humans function as individuals, households, and communities. It's hard for us to see the results when we are a tiny percentage in a massive effort. It is psychologically easier to do things in your own community because you'll see the results. 
Therefore, we call for individual, household, and community-scale solutions to this problem, but across the industrialized nations, as much of the non-industrialized world can live without non-renewable energy sources already. And I'm sorry, these are really broad brushstrokes, and I am not going into much nuance or detail about uh, the differences between the industrialized and the non-industrialized world. Maybe I'll do that in another podcast. But desperate times call for desperate measures. Moving on. Starting now, and continuing over the next five years, every person must evaluate his or her life and determine how he or she will live without fossil fuels and other non-renewables by 2025. That's a huge change in your life. Just stop and pause the podcast for a minute and think about how would you get all non-renewable resources and fossil fuels out of your life in the next five years? It's a huge deal. We can obviously use what we have existing now, but we need to get to a state where we're not using new fossil fuels and new non-renewables by 2025. So pause for a second and then come back. I'm going to pour myself some tea. Oh, that's good. Okay. Now, most of us will have to quit or curtail our jobs over this period. 80% of our jobs are in the service sector. Many of these jobs will still exist after the transition, doctors, teachers, physical and mechanical work, etc. But if you are not providing a direct service to your new community in this new world, you'll have to be doing something else with your now free time. For most of us, this will be growing food. Before industrialization, every large-scale complex society, whether it's the Romans, Egyptians, Maya, Chinese, Mesopotamians, or any of them, they had about a 10 to 1 ratio of food growers to craft specialists. What this means is basically um, 90% of the population was growing food and 10% was doing some specific job other than food growing. We don't have to go back to this ratio. We could split our own time this way, 10 hours of growing and preserving food and one hour in cottage industries or other specialized task. This may sound bleak, but with our advances in communication and plant science, maybe we can get this ratio closer to five to one. And also, this might give us more free time in general. As absurd as it sounds, consider how much of our food today is completely dependent on fossil fuels for fertilizer, processing, transportation, and so on. Without the concentrated source of energy that is fossil fuels, our labor increases greatly. In five years, we won't be able to build all electric tractors. Think of the mining and production alone. We can, though, create enough self-reproducing powerhouses that are fueled by marginal and renewable plant matter, namely horses, mules, donkeys, and oxen. There's a reason that they existed before industrialization. In households and communities across the country, intensive gardening will have to become widespread again. We're one of the few societies in human history since the dawn of agriculture that didn't have widespread household gardening. We have no other way of feeding ourselves when we no longer have fossil-fueled transportation of fruits, vegetables, and staples from as far away as California. Ironically, the suburbs will fare well, as most suburban homes have a large enough yard to grow a considerable amount of food. Cities, though, will have to drastically reduce in population as they just don't have enough space to grow food for current residential density. 
We think that community should be limited by a few common sense rules derived from other species that have learned to live successfully in large communities. This is natural mimicry of things like ants and bees, which, when their community gets too large, they split into two, and they limit their total population in each community. First, each community must have a population maximum, and the limit should be determined by the catchment area. A catchment area will support its population by providing enough food, water, building materials, and space. Some areas will support greater populations than others. Coasts are ecologically rich, and more people can live on the resources available near a coast than, say, high in the mountains, for example. Currently, the United States has about seven acres per person. Ecologically diverse and rich areas may support people on as few as three or four acres a person, while other areas might need seven to ten acres per person. Communities should be defined within geographical areas whenever possible, say a watershed, or around a lake, along a river, or in a valley. For some communities, it makes sense to live together densely, leaving the rest of the catchment area open for careful use. In other areas, people may prefer to spread out evenly across their territory in small homesteads. In all, though, communities should average about 100 square miles and have less than 10,000 people. That's about a little more than six and a half acres per person. At this scale, one could cross the entire catchment area in less than an hour by bicycle. More importantly, people would know one another again. And as most of the resources for a community would have to come from within their own territory, the residents would have a vested interest in maintaining the ecological health of their surroundings. These dispersed communities can choose how to govern themselves and their catchment area. They can experiment with different subsistence methods. Successful strategies should be shared among communities, and failures can be avoided by others. Humans thrive on knowledge and communication, so creating a robust communication infrastructure may be more important than a large energy grid, for example. Perhaps a text-only internet, which would reduce bandwidth use, to maintain our distributed knowledge across the globe. Maybe this would be done with radio waves instead of cable. We have produced enough materials for recycling and repairing technological equipment for some time into the future. As the five-year period of transition progresses, people in communities would have to become more and more self-sufficient. Each year, every individual, family, and community would be asked to audit themselves and ask, what non-renewable resources am I still using and how can I or we create a new system to stop using them? Long-distance industrial food will be replaced with home and community-grown products. Existing buildings' utilities would have to be converted from city water systems to smaller household or community systems, from heating with fuel to passive solar, from grid electricity to household or community generation. These solutions will vary by location, ability, and taste. Transportation networks will lose gas and even electric-powered vehicles as the supply chain to maintain even so-called green vehicles has not reached self-sufficiency. Waterways will become viable again, and our existing roadways will experience less stress with foot, bicycle, and animal-derived transports. This can be paid for because we have no choice. If you choose to live in a house, you have to pay for a roof or at least build it yourself. In a changing world, products and resources are more important than the yardstick of social capital used in today's society, which is called fiat currency, otherwise known as money. We're only stewards of our resources, we're not the owners, and because resources ultimately derive from the earth and the sun, 
They don't belong to any one person. Thus the richest among us have the enviable opportunity to help the most people by divesting their assets. I'll repeat that one. The richest among us have the enviable opportunity to help the most people by divesting their assets and supporting this. Conversely, the poorest among us will get what has been owing to them due to systemic inequalities. Some will call that socialism. But consider the alternative. Our society collapses, and 99% of the people have almost nothing, and the top 1% have over 40% of America's wealth and 50% of global wealth. Do you really want castles to make a comeback? This is a further waste of our time and resources. Wouldn't it be better to be proactive, recognize what's happening, and use that wealth, and I'm talking material wealth, not necessarily monetary wealth, to create a sustainable human society now? Or why don't we put it to a direct vote? It wouldn't be 99 to 1, but it would probably be close. Some people like short action plans or a summation in short declarative sentences, so here it is. Here's the short action plan for the low-tech New Deal. Number one, complete cessation of non-renewable resources by 2025, including all fossil fuels. Two, redistribution of populations into communities of no more than 10,000 people spread across the landscape according to geographically bounded catchment areas. Three, communities must decide together, democratically, how to rule themselves and create a stable state subsistence economy using only the resources available to them in their catchment areas. 4. Each year people must audit themselves and their communities and look for ways to reduce non-renewable resource use. After the initial five-year period, this audit will continue to evaluate the state of the catchment area's ecology to monitor for declines in any renewable resource or ecological system. Five. Resources found in these catchment areas must be distributed in a fair fashion as decided on by direct democracy. Okay, so let's say for some reason the low-tech New Deal becomes wildly popular and is adopted across the industrialized world. If you were to visit one of these communities in 15 years, you'd recognize much of the persistent infrastructure. That is, our, our hard infrastructure that we still have today, right? Roads, buildings, things like that. But the use of this infrastructure and modifications would be completely new to you. You'd feel at home in the society, but you'd note the massive changes that have taken place culturally and physically. You'd eat well, but you'd be asked to work hard. After the transition, our energy comes from the sun, wind, water, and animals. Some solar panels power electronic equipment, but as solar panels can't be built by the average person with locally available resources, their use is limited and maintenance is essential. The sun does better in heating homes and water with DIY systems than generating electricity. Wind power also creates some electricity, but it does better with putting the kinetic energy to use directly, say pumping water or turning tools and wheels. Waterways are carefully tapped with diversion channels instead of dams for small-scale hydropower, like the wind, used for some electricity but mostly in kinetic tasks. Traction animals provide real green solutions for jobs that require more horsepower, literally, than a person can provide. Our food comes from neighborhoods and outlying areas within our catchment area. Some communities choose to live close together and have fields outside the town, 
Others have homesteads spread across the catchment area. Yet other communities have devised novel distribution across the landscape, but all are eating food grown nearby. Vegetables, fruits, and tubers provide most of our calories, and while some grains make their way onto our plates, much is fed to our animals, some of which ultimately end up in our larders and fill our butter churns. Few ancient societies traded staples. Rome is the best and worst example, as many administrations succeeded or failed due to the availability of Egyptian grain shipments. And trade should be restricted to shelf-stable goods of high value. With our robust communication network and knowledge of biology, many hacks have surfaced, helping us grow a wider diversity of food than would be expected in our varied climates. Our infrastructure and economy grew out of our previous age. Roads and houses have been repurposed for long-term use. Mansions and McMansions have been converted to be energy efficient and now host multiple families in their many rooms. Roads last longer with lighter traffic and require maintenance and repair. Some communities experiment with a sharing economy with little need for a currency, while others have tried a free market system. Yet other communities invented novel ways to structure their economies, but all systems must be agreed upon by democratic votes on a regular basis. Any economy that has become too one-sided or favoring one group over another can be reorganized by a vote. Society has changed, but in large part it has stayed the same. FaceTime isn't an app on a phone, it's in person. And a community of 10,000 people or less provides a diversity of opinions and interests so that we can spend our leisure time with people doing things we enjoy. Many jobs still exist as we need healthcare, education, and specialized services to maintain our infrastructure and ecosystems, but those with these tasks are also connected with subsistence activities. We have sports teams and sometimes play against our neighboring communities. Itinerant merchants travel from catchment area to catchment area with goods, but news is spread through the radio and the text net. Wikipedia has grown exponentially, as have specialty forums for now disparate experts to keep up to date on the latest advancements in their fields. That's just a brief sketch of what it might be like 15 years after the low-tech New Deal is implemented. But really, is this feasible, or is it even desirable? And the answer to these questions will vary by, by whom you ask. Technically, I think they're feasible, if society got behind them. But the real question is, what collateral damage are we willing to accept to achieve them? I didn't address population, for example, uh, which may decline or perhaps could be maintained at the current level in such a situation. Uh, across the world today, we see population levels remain constant through birth rate reduction when both sexes are educated and valued more equally. I also failed to address the existing pollution in our ecosystems. As part of this five-year plan, each community is going to have to deal with heavy metals, toxins, carcinogens, and other things we've dumped into our environment. This may mean that some areas are uninhabitable or must be left to rewild. This may cause us to further reduce our space per person, but I think we're up for the challenge. This would remedy another shortcoming of this proposal, which is wild space, which the non-human life on this world needs. Although our new way of life would be easier on the landscape, we may have to concentrate down to three or four acres per person to leave a third of the world wild. Perhaps these are large designated areas as well as interstitial spaces between the communities. I anticipate the overwhelming majority of people in the US today would say that the low-tech New Deal is undesirable. And of course, it is absolutely everyone's right to have an opinion about that. My response, however, is to ask anyone who says 
No, this isn't how I want to live. To suggest a better plan. A plan that meets the criteria laid out above, that is net zero emissions and the long-term stable state economy, subsistence, and ecosystems. Your critiques are absolutely welcome. Please share them on our website, social media, anywhere you want. I'm happy to share them and I don't restrict what people want to say. But please provide a better solution where you find faults. Simply throwing up our hands and saying, this is a terrible idea because nobody will want to live like that is not a valid critique anymore. I refuse to live in a Mad Max future because everyone tears down solutions without presenting better alternatives. The reason this is so difficult is because we don't want to give up our current way of life. But unfortunately, our descendants won't have much of a choice. It's up to us to give them something stable to inherit now, while we still have time to make a choice. And now we usually do regular news roundups and institute updates, but for time, I think I'm going to cut those out this week. You can check out our blog. We had our low-tech news roundup published uh, on today, Friday. Uh, and as far as institute updates go, really check out our sustainability Skillshare. Go to the Low-Tech Institute website, lowtechinstitute.org. Click on sustainability Skillshare uh, under the workshops tab and sign up for classes today before they fill up and are no longer available. We have classes on all kinds of great stuff coming up on June 1st and 2nd. Check out the website for more details. Future podcasts will feature interviews with some of the instructors, so stay tuned for that. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Saunter, off the album Backbeat by Poddington Bear. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend and rating us on your podcast platform. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by its members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute membership and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly at scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care. <laughs>